The Saskatchewan Healthcare Coalition is hosting the All for Public Healthcare Rally in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, May 4th. It's free and you're invited. This rally is happening because our public healthcare system does not have the support it needs to meet the diverse needs of all Saskatchewan residents. For years, it has been underfunded, ignored, and hindered. So join Donna and I in person on May 4th in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan for a walk, speeches, networking, and community building. Link for more information is in the show notes. Hope to see you there. And my best friend, Todd, was coming over every day and we would do heroin. And, uh, and I was also taking a ton of Xanax at the time. I think I was hungry or he was hungry. And we were like, let's get some Mexican food. So we call up the Mexican place and we're watching 90210 and smoking weed and, and doing heroin. And, and then all of a sudden, I like, I shoot a bag and I like fall out. And, and he thought I OD'd and died. And uh, at the same time, there's a knock on the door. And Todd's like, oh, and he freaks out and he starts running around the apartment, like doesn't know what to do because he thinks I'm dead in the back room. And now who's at the door? And he opens the door. And as he opens the door, he faints. He just opens the door to our apartment and he faints. And when he faints, I come too. And I, and I come too. And then I see Todd on the ground in the doorway and standing over him is this Mexican guy. And I'm like, what the fuck happened? You know, and then I see the Mexican guy, you know, has a bag of food and he's wearing, you know, a restaurant kind of outfit. And I was like, oh yeah, we got Mexican food. Dave has a plethora of stories that are equally hilarious, outrageous, and heart-wrenching. From being a waiter at one of the world's most famous delis, to launching and developing the Dopey Podcast, to tragically losing his best friend and co-host, Chris. Dave has had a wild ride and he ain't done yet. What's up, everybody? My name's Dan and this is Hard Knocks Talks, your mental health podcast. Make sure you stick around to the end where Dave shares some tips on getting through the Christmas season sober and there's a bonus story too. What's up, Dave? What's up, Dan? How are you today? Thanks for joining me. I am very well. It's a pleasure to be on the Hard Knocks Talks podcast after all this time. Uh, is there is there anything that you'd like to to say before we jump in today? I want to say that I am feeling good and that I'm happy to be here and that I I'm a Jewish person who loves the holidays and Dan has a big Christmas plan. So ignore the fact that Jesus Christ is not my personal savior, but I love Christmas. You know what? He's not mine either. So having said that, let's go. This is Hard Knocks Talks. All right. If you are struggling with the substance use of a loved one or have tragically lost someone to drug-related harms, reach out to Stronger Together Canada peer-led support groups by Mum Stop the Harm. If you are in search of a private inpatient addictions treatment, check out Prairie Sky Recovery Centre located in Lipsig, Saskatchewan. And the Elizabeth Fry Society of Saskatchewan covers all associated costs for women or gender-diverse individuals to apply for criminal record suspension. Reach out to Chelsea at 306 668 6 Five, three. To make contact or learn more about today's sponsors, check out our new merch, or if you want to show us some love and buy us a coffee, all those links are in the show notes below. The life of a Dave. Now, did you grow up around a lot of substance use? Is that something that was normal for you at home? No, no. I grew up in a middle-class uh, Jewish household in New York City, 
My parents were both teachers. There was no substance abuse or use in my house. My dad might drink a beer when he ate spaghetti, but he wouldn't drink more than a beer. Uh, my sister dabbled with drugs as a teenager, but I didn't know about it until I was a teenager. And at that point, that that's kind of when it started, you know. Mm-hmm. But it was like- it was very it was very middle of the road, middle class New York City kind of thing mm-hmm. where I grew up. What was it like the first time you got loaded? Were you like scared? Was there any talk at home? Like, don't do drugs. Drugs are bad. Or was this like a completely like, what is this moment? It's funny. There was no talk, Hmm. no talk. Um, First time I got loaded was alcohol. And I was a waiter at a camp in Massachusetts. It was one of the worst summers of my life. And uh, the way you, the alcoholics kind of describe feeling alone, right? Mm. Like lonely, not like disenfranchised. I, that that camp, I was totally alone. And I found a new level of sort of depression and uh, isolation. And the last night of the year, the kitchen staff, who are mostly English, threw a party and I went to the party. I was probably 15 years old, and I probably drank 16 screwdrivers, and I blacked out, uh, and I somebody had to hold me up in the shower, and I vomited, and that was the first time. And then I didn't get drunk like that again, maybe ever. But I, but I, but and I kind of discovered that I couldn't drink. But shortly after that, I got really interested in weed. And, uh, and and I really fell in love with weed, uh, deeply and significantly in love with weed. And that was a real, I, I would never call it a gateway drug, but it was totally an entry point into my mm-hmm. addiction. And then I, I was really into rock and roll. I was really into like the Beatles and like the idea of like drug culture. And uh, I started to take psychedelics and then I would take uh amphetamines and then like i think there were quaaludes around when i was in college we took a bunch of those and then you're really dating yourself now i don't know how there were Mm -hmm. like like i i talked to guests about quaaludes and i i remember we had some kind of supply of lemons and they were like quaaludes that we called lemons i don't like i did so many drugs that i i don't remember a lot of my story in in mm-hmm. like real cohesive cohesive kind of ways but i think there was a quaalude section and then um i went i wound up transferring colleges and i did heroin for the first time i transferred into an art school i did heroin with this kind of pseudo rock star and i got real sick and i was like i'm just going to stick with weed but then a few years later I was just fucking around, you know what I mean? Once you're a real stoner, like once I was a real stoner and I mean like an everyday stoner, I was open to anything. And eventually I wound up totally addicted to uh, heroin and benzos. So was there ever any times where you did dumb shit that ended you up in stints of sobriety? Like was like, I'm done. And then you actually quit for a while or was it just all balls to the wall? No, I, I never, I never had any, like I wouldn't even have a day. Like I, I started when I was probably 
a freshman. I mean, I smoked weed before I was a freshman in college, but I remember one day, freshman year in college, uh, I was with a, a new friend and I said, and we were in a band and I said, I said, I'm going to smoke weed every day. And I probably smoked weed every day from 18 to 40, unless I was in treatment. And, uh, and then I added drugs on it and I always used kind of my stoner dumb and I'd apply it to whatever other drug I was doing like that. And that's probably why <laughs> I became such a horrible drug addict. Uh, but no, I never had any time. And and once, once I, like, and that's how I am. Like, I'm just a real all or nothing kind of person. Like that's, mm -hmm. I was just describing to you, Dan, that I've put out dopey for 441 weeks in a row. It's just my nature is I just am fucking all in. That's mm -hmm. just how I am. And yeah. once I, and I remember like once I started making a little bit of money, uh, I, I was doing heroin a few days a week and I don't know how I thought I could afford to do heroin every day. I, but I remember thinking I could afford it, but that was a dumb thought. What were you, okay. You started making some money. What were you doing to make money? Uh, I was producing a TV show. I was hosting a TV show and producing a TV show. Shit. So and, you come by this naturally then like this whole podcaster thing. This is something that you've sort of like worked into. This isn't just like me. I'm a, I was a welder. And then one day I was like, I got a laptop. I'm going to do a podcast. It was always like, who the fuck said that? So no, yeah. Like I had, I had a vision to be a talk show host when I was a teenager and when I was in high school, I was actually on MTV. Like I had an internship wow. at MTV and I wound up being on MTV. And then I wound up getting a job as a production assistant for a little uh, crew. And then I got a production assistant job for another TV company. And I wound up producing a little show for Lorne Michaels, who did Saturday Night Live owned mm -hmm. a company called Broadway Video and Broadway Video bought this company called Burley Bear Network and Burley Bear Network was basically a college cable network and I got hired to produce some stuff but then they thought I was funny so they let me host a bunch of stuff and um and then I made a music show there and I got to interview a lot of like famous rock stars and stuff and that's okay. kind of when I became a heroin it was in that <laughs> period was the was the was the rock stars in your proximity uh, a direct uh, player in your uh, discovery and uh, accelerated use of heroin? Definitely not. No, it was it was no, definitely not. Like I was a kid, mm -hmm. I was like twenty four, and I'd go interview like Ween or something, and I would get loaded, and I would go out to Long Island, and and Ween would be loaded, but we wouldn't have gotten loaded together. <laughs> You know what I mean? Or like I would interview like Bob Weir from The Grateful Dead, but it's not like we were getting high together. I interviewed mm -hmm. a lot of rock stars who were high. I never got high with any of them. You got high um, before. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. So a lot of the interviews, a lot of the work that you did um, in production, all of that, you were high on heroin the whole time. The whole time. I, it was, I became a heroin addict when I would do that stuff. And one of the reasons... I'm so passionate about the quality of Dopey was because when I was a kid, I interviewed a lot of my heroes like Bob Weir, like Ween, like KRS-One, like uh, 
who did I interview? The Flaming Lips, like all these bands from the '90s. This guy Junior Brown, this great guitar player. Uh, fucking Eric uh, EPMD, which is a great hip hop group from back then. I, I interviewed a bunch of like people that I love, and I didn't prepare in the slightest. Mm. And when I got the opportunity to do Dopey, I decided I was never going to do an interview unprepared again. And so half of Dopey is just about preparing, 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 preparing. Um, but but back in those days, like I interviewed this this very very famous rapper named Karis One. That was the first on camera interview I had done, and I was stoned, but I wasn't on heroin, uh, and I was so excited that it wound up being good. Mm-hmm. And, but excitement can only carry you so far. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I was mm-hmm. a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, as my career, and I'm talking about between the ages of 22 and 25, in that little pocket, I I produced, I don't know, 50 shows, you know, that came out once a month. or I, I don't remember how the how the shows were released or anything. But by the third, I, I got, and I got a contract. I, I mean, I, it was the 90s. And I got a contract where I was getting uh, 80 grand a year, 90 grand a year, 100 grand a year when I was 22. Well, in the and 90s, was that like, was still something, too. I was like, I've made it big. I'm rich and famous is what I and I and I was neither rich nor famous. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but that's when I decided I could afford heroin. And as soon as I decided it, uh, everything I did sucked. You know, like I showed, I looked horrible. I sounded horrible. I was, I didn't come to work all the time. Uh, I came to work late. I had a terrible attitude. I was a jerk. Um, And that was just the very beginning, you know, of my heroin addiction. I wound up losing the gig because I got so strung out that um, I was, I was in low income, uh, low income housing in New York city. I was paying like $300 a month. I was making $80,000 a year and I couldn't afford my apartment and I had to go to detox. And it's kind of like I had this moment where I had to decide, was I going to tell my boss or was I going to tell my parents? And I decided to tell my parents and my boss was like, we can finally fire this guy because he breached contract, Mm. you know, and that was a big mistake. But that and then after that happened, I lost the job. I wound up getting another high-end production job at MTV. I made a special at MTV. I directed uh, Jason Schwartzman. He was like the kid in Rushmore. He was in uh, Darjeeling Limited. I don't know if you know Jason Schwartzman. He's he's a pretty famous actor. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I directed him and I was wasted on heroin for that. It was fucking horrible. Uh, I did that job. I literally... The last day of the job, I walked around the floor of MTV, which is on 1515 Broadway. And back then in MTV, if you walked around there, every desk in there, and there's hundreds of desks, are covered with CDs that the record companies give to anybody that works there. I took five shopping bags, I filled them up with everyone's CDs, and I left there stealing every CD I could get. I went down to St. Mark's Place in New York City and I sold them all. They never hired me again. And that was kind of the beginning of the end of my career and mm-hmm. the beginning of my serious, horrible drug addiction. 
Did you find yourself homeless? Did you find yourself still looking for more work? Like, cause for, for me, for me, it came to a place where I'm like, screw the man, I'm not working anymore. And I tried to start a, I tried to start a recycling company and I was just basically digging in dumpsters to, to buy dope. So that's, that's how it went for me from welding company to near homelessness. I always say that I, I was too bougie uh, to ever be homeless. Like if I didn't have cable TV, I don't think I would have kept a habit. Like I think I would have gotten clean <laughs> if I had, had <laughs> if I had had real hard times. I think I would have gotten sober way earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't come from money. I just would figure out ways to kind of pull it off. You know, mm -hmm. like um, in the beginning, I got fat unemployment. You know. I got fat unemployment and my, my apartment was so cheap and my parents enabled me a bit, you know, mm -hmm. like they would, they would throw the 300 bucks towards my rent or something, you know, when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And then my heroin addiction was so bad. Um, and so obvious to everybody that they were like, you need to go away and get help. So, uh, I got, a, I, we didn't have any money. I got a scholarship to a treatment center in Florida. And I went to Florida to long-term treatment and I didn't want to get sober, but I knew that I couldn't survive. Mm -hmm. And the treatment center convinced my parents to not pay my rent, my $300 a month rent that I also need to tell you, like I grew up in low income housing. My mm -hmm. mother put me on the list for my apartment when I was 11. I got it when I was 21. You know, I waited 10 years to get that apartment. That's some and, foresight. Uh, it was, but it, it, but as soon as I went to rehab, they convinced my parents to not pay for it. So then mm. I was kind of like, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't want to get sober. I didn't want to live in Florida. Uh, and I worked at a furniture moving company and I got a, a plane ticket and I moved to Los Angeles. I had friends living in LA um, and I got there intent on being a stoner. But when I showed up there, my best friend had already discovered, had just discovered uh, crystal meth. And I was like, okay. And, um, and I kind of knew as soon as I did it, that I wasn't going to be a crystal meth person. But mm. I also knew that I couldn't handle getting up like that without seeking out benzos and heroin. So mm. I wound up totally strung out in Los Angeles in their house. I got another kind of decent production job there working on a TV show, which I lost almost instantaneously mm. and then i convinced my ex-girlfriend to move and be with me and we got an apartment and she paid for it for the next five years in la wow. and so, that's how i got by uh you mentioned that your parents enabled you uh a bit what was that conversation like you know you're talking to your parents and oh you know i lost my job like were you were you lying to them were you telling them the truth like how did they how, what did that conversation sound like with your parents at that time i think i was a pretty masterful liar before i ever did heroin mm -hmm. like i when i was a kid uh, i would have friends come over and and my friends would always say to me I, I don't I, I can't talk to your parents because I don't know what lie you're going to tell them. And mm -hmm. I don't want to contradict whatever you say. So like I was in a, I was a total liar. I lied about anything I could as often as I could. And um, I just I just came up with shit. And I mean, they knew I had gotten fired, but they had also known that I had to go to detox. 
you know, like they didn't really, we didn't understand what addiction was going to look like. We mm. did not have a roadmap out. They never had dealt with anything like it. Mm. Um, and they just did their best. When did it start to become a thought in your head that maybe drugs aren't going to work out for me? It didn't. It, I, I did not have that thought. I was totally committed to using and I used um, straight. Like I wanted to, I, I wanted to want to stop. Mm. And I, I never wanted to stop smoking pot. Like mm. when I got to LA, it became clear that when I moved in with my girlfriend, I wasn't going to be able to afford heroin. Uh, so I got on methadone and I would still buy heroin and I would shoot as much heroin as I could before I would get my dose for the day. And I would buy benzos every day and I would steal the money uh, from my girlfriend. The only job I had uh, in LA, I worked at a weed dispensary and I had them pay me in pot. I was I was like the security guard at a weed dispensary and I was high <laughs> on heroin. I was the worst, I was the worst security guard a weed dispensary could ever have. Mm-hmm. And um and then and then I had I had other really horrible jobs that I did not last at. And but I never wanted to get so sobriety was not on my radar. Um I kind of wanted to not be a heroin addict. I kind of wanted to be a stoner. Uh mm-hmm. I wanted to I wanted to stay high. Like I was neurotic, I was anxious, I was fearful, and I loved drugs to keep me from being those things. Did you so have like, ask- so I wasn't interested in, in sobriety yeah. until honestly, until like way later, until we had had a I, I I'd gotten with this other woman and she had gotten pregnant and we had a kid. And mm-hmm. and that's when I was a little interested in sobriety. And I still wasn't really interested. I wasn't really interested in sobriety until I got sober, to be totally honest with you. I was not interested. Like, I didn't want it until mm-hmm. I got it. You know, like... If you didn't want it, why did you get sober? I was so... At the at the, at the, the point of getting sober, uh, I, was, I was 41. You know, so we're skipping over many, 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 many years of idiocy, you know, and addiction. And my mother died and me and the girlfriend broke up and I wound up with uh, this other woman and she got pregnant and I was getting high. Um, And then I was trying to lie my way through that. And I found that I wanted recovery when it became obvious that I couldn't care for my daughter and when i when it became obvious that i couldn't that i couldn't use and care for my daughter and and when i say that i couldn't use anything and be the father that i wanted to be because i at the end i wasn't doing heroin i was taking pills very rarely i was smoking weed uh after work but i even in that mode which was functional user functional Mm -hmm. addict i knew that i couldn't be the person that I wanted to be in order to be the father that uh, she deserved. And the person really wasn't about her as much as I didn't want to look at myself and hate myself that I was a child at 41 with a child. And mm-hmm. that's when I wanted to get sober. What was it like entering recovery? Did you go to treatment? Did you like go to the rooms? Did you go to what, what did that look like? I had gone to treatment. 
I, I had gone to treatment because I had relapsed on heroin, like to a, to a major level. Mm. Like I was, I was shooting like $300 a day for a year or something. And I was a total train wreck and I would come visit my, I, I always paid my child support and I always did my visitation, even if I was wasted, you know? Mm. So I think what happened was I went to treatment and I came back and I still didn't really want to be sober. Uh, I didn't really want to be sober when I got sober. I, I mean, I remember I had one of those moments where I was writing my daughter's mother and begging her for permission uh, to let me smoke weed and have parent rights. And I, I remember I'm sitting in an apartment on the Lower East Side of New York City and I'm just like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, how, how is this the end of my run that I'm mm -hmm. like, who am I? Like, how is this my life? And I kind of had that moment where I was like 41 with a child. We, I mean, I think our daughter was four at that point. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, how am I begging to smoke weed? Like, and then, and then I went to a, a 12 step meeting the next day mm -hmm. and I went to a 12 step meeting and there was a kid who was celebrating 10 years, uh, at the 12 step meeting. And the kid was probably 27. And I was like this, and he's like covered in tattoos and he was really handsome. And I was like, who is this fucking kid? Mm. And I went up to him at the end of the meeting and I was like, I wanted to tell him how annoying he was that he had 10 <laughs> years and was so young and successful and nice and, tattoos. Uh, yeah, you know, he was just like he was he was a kid with his shit together, you know, and and, and I was a 41-year-old and I was a total mess. And uh and he was very nice to me even though I was a total jerk off to him. Mm -hmm. And he said uh he said, "Oh, how many days do you have?" And I said, uh I said, "I have today." And he goes, "Oh, wow, so today can be your first day." And I'm like, you know, kind of annoyed that he said that. Yeah. And then I was like, well, maybe it could be, you know, and um, and then I went home and I called uh, a couple friends and I had them come over and I gave them all of my weed. And I, I had jars and jars of bud and, and, and edibles and all that shit. And I gave them all of that stuff. And then I found another meeting the next morning at 730 in the morning uh, in Chinatown in New York, which was very close to where I lived. And I went there and I and I kind of talked about where I was at and how much I wanted my family back and how upset I was at myself. And, and there was a guy in the meeting who said, we'd love it if you came back tomorrow. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. Uh, and I went back the next day and uh, that meeting met seven days a week at seven thirty in the morning. And I was a naturally, and I still am a natural early riser and, uh, and I never had anything to do. Mm -hmm. So to have the ability to go to this place um, was great. And I think probably the second or the third day going, I had this thought, you know, which was I'm 41. Uh, if I'm lucky, I'll live to be 82. And this can be half of my life. And I've used basically all of it, you know, all of my adolescent adult years. And I have this, I have a waiter job at a deli and a subletted apartment. What could recovery look like? And that moment, was the first moment I probably said, I want to see what life without drugs would be like. Did uh, 
in that moment, did a weight pile on or did a weight come off? I was just open for the first time. Mm -hmm. So maybe a weight came off. I was mm -hmm. open to, to something different and mm -hmm. I hadn't been since ever. Mm -hmm. So being open was, you can call it a weight was lifted, but really my, my, my view expanded and I was like, wait a sec, I could do something totally different. And, and and that's that's what happened. So what did that what did that look like then when you said I, I could do something different? What did that first different thing look like? Was that just like going to meetings? Like did you did you what did it look like? Oh, it was strictly uh, meetings. Yeah, you know, I, I, there's a reading, there's a reading um, called How It Works. Oh, and yes. in how it works, it says, rarely have we seen someone thoroughly follow this path and not achieve these results. And I knew that uh, I had never thoroughly done fucking anything except used. And if they're, and then they did promises and I was like, you gotta be kidding me. But oh, yes, I they come true before you're halfway through. But I never believed in anything like that. But at the same time I was crazy desperate. So I decided that I was going to do it to the best of my ability because I never had before. Mm -hmm. And I did. And uh, it totally worked. Mm -hmm. Totally worked. And that's basically my whole story. I never used again. I started Dopey uh, four months later, you know, like, you know, like that. And that was it. Like, tell me what it was like when you first envisioned the podcast. Like, what did the, for me, the name came to me and it felt like it came from somewhere else. And like when it was presented to me the name of my podcast like it made me cry and i felt like finally like i've got this thing that i can use to make sense of all of the bullshit that happened to me use it for for good instead of continuing to lie and be deceitful and all of these things what was it like for you the first time you hit record well i had, i had been working at this deli this very 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 famous deli in new york city for a while probably for Oh God, uh, seven years I had been working there and I had become a waiter there. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's like one of the most famous restaurants in the world, really. Have you ever seen uh, When Harry Met Sally? I have. You know the scene where she fakes the orgasm? I, I should, by the sounds of it. <laughs> it's a very famous scene where she's at this deli and... She's talking to Billy Crystal and she says, all women fake it. And he's like, I would know if a woman fakes it. And she has this very robust fake orgasm in this deli. And it's, it's the deli that I work at. Okay. Uh, it's called Katz's. It's, it's 135 years old. It's, it's probably the most famous deli in the world. Uh, hmm. Donnie Brasco was shot there when Harry met Sally was shot there. Fucking... Um, they did impractical jokers there a million things but mm -hmm. um when i was there i i had this vision of doing a show about cats's called behind the counter everyone that works at cats's is, is i mean 98 percent of everyone that works at cats's is dominican and they're really funny and they're really old school new york and i wanted to make a show about them and call it behind the counter because i was a big behind the music fan and i thought behind the counter would be a funny show but mm -hmm. it turned out that once i put a camera on them they were totally cheesy and not good and i was like "Fuck, how am i going to make a show out of it 
and I decided that I was going to make the show about me and then they could just make fun of me because they always did. And uh, so the show became called The Last Jewish Waiter and it was about a waiter who hates waiting tables and wants to have a talk show. So he does the talk show while he waits tables. And we did three episodes of it and it got a ton of press. Like USA Today wrote about it and the Huffington Post wrote about it and New Yorker wrote about it. And Chris, who I had met in treatment, uh, who I started Dopey with, was like, I want to do something like that. And I was like, well, I don't know what that would be. And then I had this other friend I'd remembered years ago who was like, we should do a podcast about drug stories. And I'm like, what's a podcast? And he's like, (laughs) oh, it's like a radio show. And I was like, "Uh, okay. And I was high. And I was like, and and he made one. And he sent it to me and it was like celebrities telling drug stories and, and my friend kind of introducing like, like stories that had been on other shows. Like okay. he curated other stories, <laughs> he put them together and he's like, that's going to be my podcast. And I was like, I was too high to really understand what he was doing. Mm. And, but I remembered the idea and Chris was like one of the funniest people I had ever met and one of the worst drug addicts and had just funny, stupid drug stories. So Chris was like, I want to do something like The Last Jewish Waiter. And I had just gotten sober and I I was talking to him on a daily basis. And I was like, okay, well, why don't we do something then? Because I knew I needed something to do. Like I just needed something to fucking do. I was in a band, but our band sucked. And I didn't enjoy it. I I played guitar and sang and stuff. And I didn't enjoy... Like the band wasn't working and I knew the band wasn't going to work. And I didn't like late nights really. And and I always was a crazy uh, Howard Stern show fan. Mm. And, uh, and, and all of a sudden it just started clicking in my head. I was like, we can do a show about the worst drug stories that we ever thought of. And, and Chris was like, let's do it. And he's like, what do we do? And I was like, come to my apartment and chris lived in great barrington massachusetts and i lived on the lower east side of new york and i said come to my apartment and we'll record and uh, he said okay and he drove down and and he was i was 41 and he was 31 and he came to my house and he's like what do we do and i knew i just knew what i wanted to do and i we didn't have any gear uh and i told him not to buy any gear because mm-hmm. I had it in my head that if we bought any gear, we would never do the show. It would be another thing that we said we would do that we would never do. Yeah. And instead, we both had MacBook Pros, and I had recorded some songs using the mic on the MacBook Pro, so I knew that was doable. So mm-hmm. we just talked into the computer. Um, we did, I think, four episodes the first time he sat down. And I think the first time he came, we were talking about what the show should be called. And we had had maybe three or four conversations about what the show should be called. And Mm. we were like, it's going to be called War Stories. That's Mm. the name of the show, 100%. And the show is only going to be War Stories. And if people don't like it, fuck them. I don't care. Like we were both in 12 step and they, they don't like war stories in 12 step. And everyone says, I don't like war stories. And I said, well, this is the show for people that like them. You know, we liked them. We thought they were funny and stupid and, 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 and just absurd. 
and um and then we, we we chris is at my apartment and he's he's like typing in like to get a, a hosting thing you know whatever and he types in war stories and there was a podcast called war stories like about real war stories <laughs> like the korean <laughs> war or like yeah. world war ii or whatever yeah. and he's like and i'm like and, and i i remembered like that morning i was walking home from the deli and there was some kid on clinton street some spanish kid wearing a black baseball hat with gold letters and i don't mean just like gold printed letters like letters made of gold attached to the hat and mm -hmm. it said dope and i was like and i looked at this kid and i grew up in the 90s you know what i mean i came of age in the 90s and dope was a great word i loved hip-hop music that shit is dope like mm -hmm. i loved that thing i love that idea that shit is dope that shit is dope and then when i became a heroin addict hearing heroin described as dope or weed described as dope i was like that's such an interesting word and i look at the kid and i and all of a sudden my grandfather pops in my head and my grandfather was like an old-timey new york city jew a tough like he's a tough tough guy and, and if he had seen this kid on the street he would have been like who's this fucking dope you know what mm. i mean like who's this fucking idiot and uh, and then i was like that's such an interesting word that and then i thought of the word uh dopey you know but because like howard stern is like your your dopey story your dopey this like in the derogatory kind of way yeah and chris said maybe we should call it two dopes talking about dope and i was like no let's just call it dopey and it just stuck and mm -hmm. um and 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 after chris died right chris died uh yeah. while we made the show and after he died, people started calling me Dopey Dave. And I, that's the only time I've regretted the name Dopey because I never wanted to be Dopey Dave. And I still, if anyone calls me Dopey Dave, I like stop them. Like I will not own Dopey Dave. I don't like it. So I should change the file name on this recording yeah. then? Yes, okay. No, you can, you can call the file name Dopey Dave. Yeah. But on the show, you can say Dave from Dopey or David yes. Mannheim from Dopey Podcast. But yes. no, so like I, I loved the name Dopey and I thought it was the perfect mm. name for our show. Mm. And if Chris had lived, I would never have become Dopey Dave. It wouldn't have been Dopey Dave and Dopey Chris. It would have just been Dopey. Guys yeah. from Dopey. So tell us then, uh, how long into the show were you before Chris passed? He died after our 142nd episode mm -hmm. um we were two and a half years in it was um <clears throat> it was our fifth year anniversary of his death so he died in 2018 um and we had a lot of death in the show um there was a guy i mean there's a lot of people that died who were in the show like there was a guy named dave marshall who had a CrossFit gym who had set up our Facebook page. Um, he died. Uh, there was uh, a couple of listeners who wrote us emails about about themselves and their families informed us that they died. Um, one of my very best friends who I kind of came up using with, the kid who actually was on crystal meth when I moved to LA, um, he died. And when he died, I, like lost it like and, and he died in the summer of 2018 
my wife and I had just bought our, our first house. Like we had gotten back together, you know, and after Dopey started and we had had a second daughter and our second daughter was born in May of 2018. And in June of 2018, my best friend died. And then in July of 2018, Chris died. And, um, it was beyond, uh, traumatic, Mm -hmm. like just, just, uh, a miserable awakening to what almost the hubris that we had in making the show in the first place. You know, we were making fun of addiction and then it kills half the listeners. You know what I'm saying? How did that change the way you did the show? Because, I mean, what you just talked about was, you know, you're we're making fun of addiction all day long and yet it's killing half the people. You know, it sounds like you had a bit of an awakening there. How did that change how you produced the show? Well, after my friend died, Chris was relapsing, but I didn't know it. Mm. And the show kind of changed then, and I remember it fairly well, that um, we got a a story from somebody, you know, like some story about like fake urine or, you know, what would have been just a normal, stupid, funny story that we would have laughed about. And Chris said something, and I said something to him like, I don't really think that's funny anymore. And Mm -hmm. he said, what do you mean? And I said, well... I think everything changed when Todd died. And and for me, everything did change when Todd died. And I wasn't like, the show is still funny. It's different. You know, there's a lot of comedy in Dopey still, but it just needs, like, the consequences need to be acknowledged. And when we talked about uh, laughing the survivor's laugh, and... Um, I think that's okay. But but really what needs to be transmitted is the only way you get to stay sober is by putting work in. That's the only real way it's guaranteed. And, and I think that was added to the show um, by, by, by means of the reality that, that the, the creator was dead, that the co-creator was gone. So like that, for the first year he died, like I think I talked about him being gone every day. Uh, now, five years later, I, I do two tribute shows to him every year. He, I mention him every episode. Uh, mm-hmm. Our Instagram page still says Dave and Chris. Our Twitter says Dave and Chris. Because him not being on the show is really relevant to the show's existence, no matter how far the show goes or no matter what the show is. Um, so I think the show's changed mostly in that I had to figure out how to manage a show without him, mm-hmm. uh, which became an interview show, which became uh, rotating guest hosts, which became, um, I mean, in a lot of ways, it became whatever I wanted it to be. Whereas when he was alive, it was me and him being funny, you know, like, and I would never trade it, but I wasn't going to give it up once he died either, because it's what I had always wanted to do. Hmm. When you when you started the show, did you have aspirations or was this just something that you were going to just do on the side and have fun with? Maybe help some people. Well, it's funny, like it was never about helping people. 
and I'm not even sure it, it is about helping people now at all. Mm-hmm. I think <laughs> that's um, a bold statement. That's <laughs> not usually what you hear. I think when we started it, we did it so we'd have something to do, mm-hmm. and we did it so we'd have fun. And then both of us were total addicts, which we were the the piece of shit at the center of the universe. You know, um, what is it? Uh, you know, uh, what, what's the expression? Uh, egomaniacs with low self-esteem, you know, all that kind of stuff. So like yeah. on one hand, we were like, dopey's nothing, dopey's nothing. But on the other hand, we were like, this could be the biggest show ever, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. You know what I mean? So like yeah. dopey has almost 11 million downloads on it now. I've had Jamie Lee Curtis on. I've had Mark Marin on a few times. We had Killer Mike from Run the Jewels. I've had Gabor Mate. Dr. Drew is a regular. Margaret Cho is a fan and a regular. Like the show is, it's not a huge podcast, but it's a pretty, it's bigger than, it's it's a, I always call it a large insect in the animal kingdom, you know, (laughs) of podcasts. It's it's a really substantial insect. And I have aspirations of it being much bigger, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, and I know that it helps people. I know that, but the way I look at it is my responsibility is to make dopey the best show. Excuse me. My responsibility is to make dopey the best show that I can make it. Right. And if I do that, the side effects of that are that people, uh, enjoy it. And if people enjoy it, if they feel like they want to listen to it and they want to spend however much time with me in the doposphere, dopeyverse, whatever you want to call it, one of the greatest side effects is, wow. I mean, when me and Chris were alive, when Chris was alive, it was, wow, those guys are obviously having fun and they're sober. And like, so that's the way I want to be helpful. It's like they can listen to the show and they can be like, wow. Dave is obviously enjoying making this show and he's sober. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, that's, that's, if I made a show, this is something that Chris said, and I still stand by it. If we made a show designed to help people, it would help nobody and it would suck. You know, <laughs> yeah. so, so if we tried to make a good show, maybe somebody will get something out of it and it could be good. And, and, and that's, that's where I stand with the whole thing. Mm. At the beginning of the show, we we spoke briefly about talking about getting through the holiday seasons, and uh, we didn't talk about that at all. So we should probably hit I on apologize. that. That's okay. Yeah. It's okay. I'm hosting. You're the one talking. I should be on top of these things. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, but tell us, like, what was it like coming into your first few holiday seasons? I know you're Jewish. I don't. I know you. You. You know. Don't really do the Christmas thing, but you know the holiday season no, affects do. us all. I do. I. I do do the Christmas thing. My wife okay. is not Jewish. My kids are not Jewish. Uh, okay. And I also love Christmas. Even mm. when I wasn't with a, a non-Jew, I always celebrated Christmas with people every year since mm. I was five. And, and, and growing up in, a, you know, New York City is a very Jewish place, but it's still not a Jewish society. So mm. Christmas has always loomed large. And the holiday season for me has never been about christmas or hanukkah or whatever it's just been about like when i used it was like there's extra money and there's no accountability and everybody's a little fucked up anyway so i could go deep um and me going deep would be leaving and never coming back never showing up in the first place 
Um, in the beginning, the holidays were very uncomfortable, mm. and I needed to stay as connected to other people in recovery as I could. And what I really needed to do was was know that it's okay to feel uncomfortable, that it will pass. And, mm. and then and then also like maximize whatever pleasure I could when I could. And if that was eating or movies or TV or sex or any good thing that I or hang out with friends or playing a game or anything, do that. Keep my mind as stimulated as I possibly could. And that mm-hmm. that's I think that's the secret to all recovery is be as active and connected as you can so you don't get stuck up there. Mm-hmm. And when I say up there, if you're listening, your brain. Yes, yes. All right, Dave. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for sharing some of your story with us and how, how Dopey Podcast came to be. Um, we'll let you go. Take care, my friend. Thanks, Dan. I had a production job in Los Angeles working on a commercial for toothpaste. I was smoking a bunch of meth at the time. So they gave me this box. And you know in a toothpaste commercial how like the toothpaste looks perfect on top of the toothbrush? I can smell it. They made those out of porcelain. And for some reason they called them nurdles. And I was responsible for the nurdles. I was smoking a bunch of meth and I had this box of nurdles and I'm smoking meth and I'm smoking weed. I don't know why I had this thought, but I was like, I need to hide the meth while I'm on set. Like I can't keep it in my pocket because I'm crazy on meth. So I take the meth and the pipe and I put it in the box with the nurdles, but I don't even realize it. And I hide it, okay? On the set, under a sink, in a bathroom. Then the director is setting up all the lights. It takes hours. And then they're like, okay, where's the nurdles? And I had forgotten that I had the nurdles and that I had hid them. We start searching for the nurdles. And I had totally spaced that I had them and hid them. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I remember I put them there. But I forgot that I had put the meth in with the nurdles. So I retrieve the box of nurdles and I hand it to the director who finds the meth and I'm promptly fired. <laughs> and I try to explain that it wasn't my meth. I just put weed in the box. I was just it was holding like, it for my friend. <laughs> it was so embarrassing because it was such a good job. And like, there was some like a beautiful girl on craft services that I became friends with. And I was flirting with her and it seemed like that was going well. And then the next thing I know I'm fired because they found meth with the nurdles. Oh, and she wasn't into meth or she wasn't into a loser drug addict getting fired on the uh, set of a commercial you know she might have been into, into the meth but besides yeah. that no. yeah. well did you ask 